Have you ever found yourself worrying about anything? How long is this sermon going to be? I heard that, amen. I'll find you out. Listen, there's all kinds of things to worry about. Uh, You know, I worry, is every single one of my kids going to need braces? Going through that for the first time in the, the lock in the uh, expense, you're like, oh my goodness. But there's, there's really some kind of comical things that when we look back at uh, things that have occupied our thought life, we go, really, I worried about that? This is 2014, and in 2012 was the end of the Mayan calendar. We have anybody that stocked up groceries, did they? It wouldn't have helped. It was the end of the world, so having a full fridge wouldn't have done any good. Before that, we had a small thing that occupied a little bit of press called Y2K. I'll admit, we, we had a tub full of water and all kinds of stuff ready at, when the clock struck midnight. And fortunately, Y10K doesn't happen for, oh, another 8,000 years. So that's plenty of time for you to worry when that one hits. Plenty of time to get prepared. You know, we worry about things that are really silly, but we worry about some things that are a little bit more significant. We worry about our weight. Uh, guys don't worry about their figure, you know, but they worry about their weight. You know what? Scientists have concluded why elephants live longer than people. They never worry about how much they weigh. They just enjoy life. We worry about our health. It's interesting. There's uh, empirical evidence to suggest that if you, a doctor comes in and just gives you outright bad news... You'll be doing better, your affect will be better six months down the road than if you're given some hope and are doing worse six months down the road. It's better to just get the news up front and deal with it. We worry about our kids. And even for us, uh, just a, a week or so ago, we sent our kid to a Christian camp that's run with excellence, and we all have Facebook pictures of a bloody ankle and stories of stitches. Just because they're at a place where they're learning God's truth doesn't mean that they're going to be free from injury. The truth is we worry about things, and this makes us nervous, because what we don't know, well, we don't know what it could be, and it could be bad. I ask the question, how would your life be different if you stopped worrying about things over which you had no control and instead focused on the things which you can control? Would life be perhaps just a tad bit different? If we were focused on things that we could actually do something about instead of worrying about things that we have no control over. And the truth is we kind of like our worry. We like it. As a matter of fact, there was a husband and wife that went for counseling and she was trying to convince her husband of the effectiveness of her worry. She said, honey, don't you realize that 97% of the stuff that I worry about never happens? Some of you will catch that later. That's 97% of our time spent worrying about things that would have never happened anyways. And so we like it. So Jesus moves into, uh, continues really, a very practical section. He had talked about attitudes and then he talked about practical religion. How do we pray? How do we fast? And now he gets into a section where he talks about our attitude of worry and learning how to Live out the words that we just sang. Great is thy faithfulness. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. 
We sing it on Sunday, but do we live it out the rest of the week? And so he starts off in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. We'll look through uh, from verse 25 uh, through the end of this passage, which ends in verse 34. And he begins with an interesting phrase. He says, for this reason, I tell you, don't worry. Don't worry. Now, the for this reason connects verse 25 with the things that have come before it. What has come before it is the whole conversation about where are you laying your treasures up? Are you laying them up on earth? Are you laying them up in heaven? What is your vision like? Who is your master? And he's saying, for this reason, because you desire heavenly treasure, because your focus is on God, because he is your ultimate master, worry just doesn't fit into the picture. Now, it becomes really clear in verse 25 when he says, I tell you, for this reason... Don't worry about your life. Well, what does he mean by worrying about your life? What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Jesus is really getting to uh, perhaps one of the most significant things that we worry about, money. You need money to buy food. You need money to buy clothes. You need money for life insurance. And Jesus is not an infrequent commenter on money and possessions. Half of the parables that come from Jesus' lips have to do with how we treat our riches. 10% of the verses in the New Testament have something to do with finances. There are 500 verses on prayer in the Scriptures. There's over 2,000 dealing with money. And so the Bible says about money that it is the root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say that money is, is evil It says it is the root of all kinds of evil. And here's why I think where it comes down to in this passage. If you have it, you're tempted to trust in it. And if you don't have it, you're tempted to doubt God's provision. Hey, I've got money. Nothing bad can happen to me. And God says, you fool. Tonight, this very night, your life is required of you. You've trusted in your money. How is that going to help you for eternity? But those who are penniless... Go, woe is me, God has completely forgotten about me. And they doubt God, his power, his provision, and even his love and his care. You've probably heard of the guy that hired a guy to do all his worrying for him. He said, hey, I will pay you $200,000 a year to do all my worrying for me. The guy thought, wow, this is a great deal. I don't worry a whole lot, so this is going to be an easy job. And then he went, deal. But here's my question. I'm looking at where you live and how you dress. How are you going to get my $200,000 salary? He said, that's for you to worry about. (laughs) Money's an issue. And so Jesus has, up to this point, addressed a ton of issues in our private life. When he talks about prayer and he talks about fasting and he talks about giving, there's a key word about what he says, how you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to do it in secret. Give in secret, fast in secret, pray in your closet. And he's talked about religious practices. But now he shows that our faith is just as important for the normal, daily, everyday walk of life as it is for the secret spiritual things that we do. The God who sees what we practice religiously in secret, guess what? He also knows our visible, physical needs The problem is sometimes we get so spiritual that we think God doesn't really care about our daily needs because they're beneath him. He's got a galaxy to run. He doesn't want to know about me being behind on my bill. He's got 
children starving in Africa. He's got conflict happening. He can't care about me. Can him? Can he? A couple things that we see here. Number one, we'll start with this. Jesus begins with a prohibition and says we shouldn't worry because of our relationship to God is our provider and life giver. We've already looked at this in verse 25. He says, don't worry. He gives a command, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. And then he asks a question. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? An interesting thing for us to look at. And he gives this illustration of God providing for his creation. He begins with two illustrations in verses 26 and then 28 through 30. He says, look at the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Listen to this question. Aren't you worth more than they? Verse 28. Why do you worry about clothes? Look, observe, learn how the wildflowers of the field grow. But they don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, O you of little faith? He does a couple things that are important here. He shows us that he provides for his creation. And he talks about how he gives food to the birds and he clothes the flowers in great glory. And he asks the question in verse 25, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Uh, You can have food and life not be a reality for you. You can have clothes in your body still be in trouble. And he's making this argument that God who has filled our bodies with organs will fill them with food. The God who's given us a body and stuff on the inside to make it work will give us clothes on the outside to allow us to adorn ourselves appropriately. Will he not do what is right? What I love about this is for those of us who are tempted to think that, you know, God just doesn't remember little old me and my problems. When we think about the cosmos and we think about God's immensity as the creator of all that is. Do you notice what he does? He stoops down with breadcrumbs and he feeds the birds. He's like the proverbial man in the park in the movies, sitting on the park bench, throwing breadcrumbs, making sure that the pigeons in Central Park are fed. This is the God that we serve. Yes, He's big and he's in charge of everything. But he cares and he takes time to take care of his own because he provides for his creation. But there's an even more encouraging truth here. It's that God's priority is people. He says this very clearly in verses 25, 26, and 30. If he provides for the birds, is he not, aren't you worth more than they? There's a comparison. Verse 30. If he's done this for the grass that is here today and is thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you? Now, it seems that uh, you know, years ago, this, um, this comment that God's priority is people would not be controversial. But we live in a day of special interest groups where now 
uh, we would be charged with speciesism to say that um, a butterfly is worth more than a person. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says that human beings are clearly made in the image of God. What else in creation shares that distinction? What else in creation has the opportunity with intelligence to worship their creator? Now, your dog will wag its tail and nuzzle your hand and, and love on you. That's not worship. That's dependence. We have the opportunity with our heart, with our mind, and with our soul to worship God. So his priority is people, if he cares for the little bird that's sold for two cents, or to change the analogy, the, the little goldfish you can get at the pet store, like five for a dollar, if he cares for them, he will care for you. This is a classical argument from the lesser to the greater. If God stoops in his care to these small and seemingly insignificant things, he will certainly take care of his people who are made in his image. So he says, here's why you shouldn't worry. Look around. Pay attention. God provides and God prioritizes. He will take care of his people. Number two, he moves into talking about this command not to worry. We are commanded... Not to worry. This happens three times in this passage. We saw it in verse 25. For this reason I tell you, don't worry. Verse 31. So don't worry, saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear. Verse 34. Therefore, don't worry. Now in the span of uh, whatever this is, nine short verses... We're told three times not to worry. Why do you think that is? Jesus have a senior moment and just forgot what he said? No. Good teaching always requires repetition, especially on those lessons that the students really need to learn. And the problem is, so often, our, our focus is right here in front of us. You can't really drive effectively looking two miles down the road. You need to see what's right in front of you. So there's, there's a natural way in which we should be paying attention to life right in front of us, but we so lose perspective on everything else that's happening. And God's saying, don't worry. It, it's natural, yes. And, uh, and he's not um, knocking preparation, wise counsel, but he, he is saying worry is inappropriate. And he commands us not to worry. Well, why does he do that? Well, he, there's, there are some substantiating points here that I think are very helpful. And the first is this, that worry is worthless. Worry is worthless. Do you realize that? Worry isn't going to do anything for you except give you ulcers. What you're worrying about might not even happen, but yet you're going to get ill over something that could? Look what he says in verse 27. He says, can any of you add a single cubit to his height by worrying? Now, we need to explain this this image here in the Bible. A cubit is a form of measurement that uh, was roughly 14 to 18 inches. And so he asks the question, he says, by worrying, can you increase your height by a cubit? Now listen, if I could increase my height... By a foot and a half, I might reach six feet tall. That'd be kind of nice, you know? Uh, So this is a significant thing. And I think sometimes that's lost on us because a foot and a half to our personal height 
would be a really significant measurement. But I think it's better to take the measurement, and instead of measuring this way, measure it this way. He's saying, how can you add to your life? He's not asking add to your life by worrying. If you think of your age as miles, okay? So here's birth. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. All the way up here to 70 miles. 70 years old. Can you add a foot and a half to those 70 miles by worrying? Even if you could, is that foot and a half really significant when you look at all the mileage that you've covered? That's what he's saying. That's why he's using this very physical element to talk about worry. He's saying, listen, even if worry was effective, it's insignificant. So what if you could change that, that thing that you're worried about right now? Is that going to change tomorrow? Is that going to change what you face a week from now? Is that going to f- change a year from now? Is it going to change your destiny? No, it's, it, it's infinitesimal. Worry is worthless. We tend to think <clears throat> that by worrying really well, that we will lengthen our life. You know what the truth is? Worry will shorten it. You'll lose your hair. You'll lose your life. Worry will create anxiety, and it's not good. We just sang in, in, in the, the, the great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, and we express this truth that, that we know kind of in the back of our mind, but it's, it's not on the forefront, <clears throat> and it's this, that our life is ultimately completely and totally in God's hands. Do you believe that? Your life is in God's hands. Do you want it in your own? Because when you worry, that's what you do. God, you're not taking care of me the way I want to be taken care of. Worry is worthless. Keep your life in God's hands and by God's grace, be happy about it because there's not a better place to be. He goes on. Another reason why we're commanded not to worry is that worry indicates little faith. Look at verse 30. He says, If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't He do much more for you, you of little faith? Now, how many of you want that to be your nickname? Hey, little faith. How you doing? Now, we want to be people of great faith. But even in this, even in this um, rebuke, I see great grace. He doesn't say, no faith. Hey, no faith, how you doing today? Pretty miserable, I bet. No, there's some faith. It's just a deficiency of faith, not an absence of faith. And so there's grace. There is work that has been done, but there is unconquered territory still. And here's why worry indicates little faith. Because the root of anxiety, the tree of anxiety, if we could get down to its root, is unbelief. Listen to what John MacArthur says about anxiety or worry. He says, worry is not a trivial sin because it strikes at God's love and His integrity. Worry declares that our Heavenly Father is untrustworthy in His word and unreliable in His promise. 
Is God trustworthy? Is His word true? Are His promises certain? Then don't worry. Has He taken care of the birds and has He promised to take care of you? He has. You see, the, the devil likes to use worry, anxiety, and uncertainty to declare war upon the people of God. As a matter of fact, it was the tool that he used to uproot Eve from the Garden of Eden. Has God really said, don't do this? Hmm. So instead of trusting in your anxiety and your worry, rest content in God's care. So worry indicates little faith. Uh, There's a grace in that because we still see that there is faith present. But he goes on. And the consequences get more significant. He says that worry is a bad example. Worry is a bad example. He goes on and says in verse 31, Don't worry, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? Verse 32, For the pagan idolaters eagerly seek all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them. What example does it set? It sets an example of anxiety, and anxiety is a characteristic of the atheists. Anxiety, in this passage, is equal to atheism. He says, we don't have to live like pagans who believe that this is all that there is. You see, they had, um, they had come up with this system where they had hundreds of gods. And if something was going wrong in their life, guess what happened? They must have really ticked off a god, and they better figure out which one it is quick so they can pacify him. So they served a capricious God. They served unknowing, uh, unknown gods, and they sought to pacify. And he says, don't, don't live like that. Don't assume, because bad things are happening, that God has put the spiritual whammy on you. Bad things happen. And he says, don't set the example of living like the idolaters. That's not the bar to jump over when it comes to your trust in God. He says, don't set a bad example of being anxious, of, being, of worrying. What are you communicating to your spouse, to your children, to your family when you say that you trust God, but you worry at every opportunity? Now, I think we have an obligation to take care of our bodies. God has entrusted us with our bodies. We are to steward them. But there comes a point where we, we act like we don't trust God because we get so preoccupied with diet and exercise, and we don't show an attendant concern for our spiritual health. Listen, if some people would pray as much as they go to the gym, they'd be much healthier people. If some people would worship as much as they run, you want to talk about life change, it would happen. So don't be focused uh, just on what is right in front of you. He concludes by encouraging us to remember three important truths. And these are really precious to us. He says, first, remember our Father. He knows and He cares. We've seen this uh, repeatedly in this passage. He says, listen, uh, I know there's a temptation for you to be like the idolaters, to worry about the things of this world, to eagerly seek these things. But in verse 32, he says, realize that your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Now, we've talked about this, but worry can only really result 
from a lack of trust in God's goodness and mercy. Trust your father. Just a few weeks ago, he used uh, the word God knows to eliminate our repetitious prayers. You don't need to repeat yourself. You don't need to use vain repetition. God already knows what you're praying for even before you pray it. This same word is now used not just to eliminate repetitious prayers, but to remove anxiety from our economics. God knows what you need more than you do. And the problem, to say it in another fashion, is that to fret moves your focus. You know, we've all seen this. You know, if, I am, if I'm taking uh, Jim here on the front row, Jim is certainly bigger than a quarter. But if I, and I don't have a quarter, I got a flash drive. What's bigger, this flash drive or Jim Runyon? Jim Runyon. But if I allow my focus to get on that flash drive, there, will, there is the potential for this teeny tiny thing to completely block out my view of who Jim is. I may not be able to see him at all if I'm focused so much on what is right in front of me. And when we fret, we move our focus from a God that is good and loving, provisional, caring for his creation to our problem. And when we fret, we move our focus. Our anxiety atrophies our vision. Small things, guess what? Become big things when they're right in front of your face. And if we could stop and reflect and see all of life, the entire forest and not just the tree, would we see that God has been kind to us? We sing the song about counting our many blessings. That's perhaps the best reminder when you're going through difficulty. To remember that as God has been faithful, He will. To sing the song that all I have needed, Thy hand has provided Blaspheme not a father who cares. Number two, he tells us to remember our priorities. Remember our father and accordingly remember our priorities. Look at verse 32. Instead of fretting about all these things, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be provided for you. He doesn't say to seek our kingdom. He doesn't even say, seek to bring his kingdom. He says, care about the Father's kingdom, the Father's righteousness. And he's not even telling us, hey, seek for spiritual things in the same way that you, speak, you seek for material things. He's just saying, seek God. Seek his glory. We read this verse and it says, all right, if we seek first the kingdom of God, all these things will be provided for you, food and clothes and life. Aren't there Christians who are starving? He didn't say when he's going to give you all these things, does he? There's no timetable. He says, hey, walk an aisle and bada boom, bada bang, your food pantry is going to be full. There's difficulty involved. We don't serve God for his blessings, but we know that they're coming. And whether they come in this age or the age to come, or whether God provides for us through the fellowship of believers who happen to have when we don't. Isn't that amazing how that happens? We pray for it, and then we go, God didn't do anything. Well, who brought you meals all last week? God's people? Guess what? 
he answered your prayer. Maybe he didn't rain manna down from heaven, but he had the heart and stopped by with some hamburgers. He had someone give to you out of the overflow of their garden. God provides. He says, instead of worrying, you want to do something active? Pursue righteous living. Submit to God and participate in His kingdom, and you'll be all right. Here's the thing that's really strange. He's he's substituting one activity for another. He's saying, don't worry. Instead, seek first the kingdom. And you know what happens? This is an advanced lesson. Okay, so this is not kindergarten Christianity. But as you pursue the right things, do you know what happens to you? You find out you have always had everything you have needed. And the things that you have thought you needed, you didn't really need. And now, you don't even want them anymore. Have you ever found that? Have you you ever experienced... In your young age, these things that you worry and you strive for, and God gives you a little bit of wisdom, and you go, why did I want that? I have always had exactly what I... I don't want that. I have new priorities. I have greater passions. If you're seeking first His kingdom, guess what? You don't have time to worry. So if worry is a perpetual problem for you, There's a very easy prescription. Get busy. Find the right things to focus on. Lastly, he he concludes our uh, kind of admonitions to remember with a, a, a painful truth. And that's to remember that life will happen. Life will happen. Listen to what he says. Verse 34. Therefore, because of all these things, don't worry about tomorrow. Why? Because tomorrow will worry about itself, and each day has enough trouble of its own. Does Jesus say, hey, follow me, and life will be a bed of roses? He says, nope, guess what? You're going to have trouble tomorrow. You're going to have a doctor's appointment, and you're going to hear some things that you don't want to hear. You're going to get your retirement portfolio, and... um, you know, instead of looking like a mountain, it's going to look like a valley, the trend line. Um, uh, you're going to get up in the morning, you're going to head out to work, and you're going to find that you have a flat tire. And now you're late and you've got to figure out how to get things fixed quick. He says, guys, life is going to happen. Concentrate on today. You will have trouble tomorrow. Deal with it. This is kind of typical of Jesus. He likes to be very realistic, and he likes to end his preaching with a warning. And he says that we need to learn to daily depend upon him. Today. Daily. Because we will face daily evil. Now, when he talks about evil, this is not um, the, the word that's used for satanic evil. The, po, poneros. This is not, you know, spiritual warfare that he's talking about. When he says daily evil... It is um, trouble. You're going to have trouble tomorrow. And it might be as um, small as a flat tire. And you know what? It might be big trouble. But it's going to fit somewhere on the scale of trouble, whether it's small or whether it's, it's, it's big. 
Corey Tenboom said, worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow, it saps today of its strength. Why worry about tomorrow when you've got enough to take care of today? And what Jesus is saying here is that daily grace is only sufficient for today. You remember when the um, children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness and God caused the manna to rain from heaven. Um, there were a couple people that decided, hey, this is great. Mama doesn't have to cook. Let's fill up all the pots and pans that we've got with the manna. Remember what happened? What happened when they got up the next morning, opened <laughs> their, their pots? It's nasty. Turned to maggots. And God was teaching them, I know you're in a desert and there doesn't seem to be anything around, but if you will trust me, I will sustain you. And the way that I'm going to sustain you is day by day by day by day. If you think you can hoard my grace and trust in yourself, it's not going to happen. You're going to find maggots tomorrow morning. So he gives us daily grace. And if there are new troubles tomorrow, friend, guess what you can rest assured of? There will be new grace tomorrow. He will give us day by day the things that we need. Jesus said that he came to give us joy, to give us an abundance of life that is palpable. But here he says, friend, there will be trouble that you will face. How do we live in light of all of this? You see, worry doesn't prevent disaster. The only thing that it prevents is joy. It's kind of like being a dad. We went to a, we had a pool party just a couple weeks ago. And uh, many of you saw my boy with a flotation suit on. Not water wings. The whole suit would float. I mean, you could throw him in a pool with a concrete block tied around his leg and he would float. And so I'm in the pool going, come on, jump to me, jump to me. We've all had this experience. Because God stands in the pool of life. And he says, I got you. I'm not going to let anything bad happen to you. I've put, you've got the suit on. You've got the water wings on, and you've got the ultimate lifeguard right here in the pool. Jump into my arms. And for us, the deeper our trust is in the Father's character, the higher heights we'll be able to jump from. And so this morning, if you worry... Instead of your worry, will you allow God to give you life? For some of you, your worry may be about your eternal destiny. I don't know what's going to happen to me when I die. You can worry about that, and you can stay up a lot of nights worrying about that, and you don't have to. For some of you, you you realize that this morning you have been a, a Christian for a long time, but you lack joy because you worry. You, you have expressed a lack of trust in the Father that you have said will save you when you'll die, but you don't trust Him to save you as you go through life. It's not important to confess every private sin publicly. Not everyone. 
But it is important, perhaps even for your own sake, to put a stake in the ground and say, from this day forward, I will trust. The next time he asks me to jump, I will jump. And there'll be freedom in that because I don't have to worry. He will catch me. If you're ate up with worry, will you trade it in for trust this morning? Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning. And Father, we say... We believe, but oh God, help our unbelief. I worry about things, and that's not uncommon. And so, Lord, in this room, help us to express our absolute and complete trust in you. God, it is inconsistent for us to believe that you will save our soul but not trust you for our daily bread. God, that we believe that our soul will be taken care of, but you don't understand the ailments that we're suffering from. We have no promise that trouble is going to disappear, but God, we have you. What else more could we want? So God, reorient our perspective and help us to understand that if we have Christ, we have everything. And to trust you, through whatever valleys, difficulties, afflictions, and troubles that we have to go through. As long as we have your presence, help us to understand that we will overwhelmingly conquer whatever difficulty comes our way. In Jesus' name we pray.